Okay, round two. All right. So if you are, were here in the first, um, grateful that you returned. Uh, if you uh, are new and you are um, hearing me for the first time, you realize I'm not Francis Chan, and that's pretty much the only Asian pastor you know. That's okay. Now you know too. All right. So um, uh, I'm blessed to be here. Uh, I love you guys. Love your pastor's heart for you. One of my favorite things to do outside of preaching at my church is just visiting other churches to see uh, their lead pastor and the pastoral staff and just love you and deeply care for you. And this is certainly a place that you are loved. And if you don't have an opportunity to encourage your pastor, would you just not assume that they're always encouraged and that they're always doing good, that you would uh, just come alongside, write a note, give them a gift card, whatever, a prayer, uh, just say thank you. That would mean so much. And um, um, I, I want to give you... Um, this session, I am <clears throat> talking about something more practical. The first session was about a heavenly realm, a heavenly dream of what God wants. God has made you to enjoy God's grace and to spread his glory. Amen? amen. All right. You see, the ones that amened uh, knew that they were uh, in the first session, I'm going to demand a response. And so you're ready. For some of you who are in this room right now that didn't know that I was going to give you a flash quiz... It's time. When I say amen, you say? Amen. All right. Way better. All right. So we, we learned that. And this time, we're going to get a little bit more nuts and bolts practical as to something that, uh, that I pray for all my life because um, I am not, and by nature, an evangelist. And, and you should know that um, when I ask God with an open hand to say, I want to be a New Testament disciple here. And I was in L.A. I asked God, would you send me anywhere? And I thought he was going to send me to the world, to the Middle East, to Southeast Asia, to Africa. And he ended up sending me to, uh, to some place really, really hard, which is the Bay Area. Now, since I've been in the Bay Area and planted a church, uh, I've gotten a series of just really difficult, difficult seasons that I had to endure. Uh, in fact, uh, not only personally, not only through my wife and through my children, but um, not only circumstances, but because we at our church um, exclusively preach the gospel. I've been attacked. I, I've been threatened. Uh, letters, emails, phone calls, and even physically, uh, somebody planted a bomb in front of my door with a, a detonation. It actually went off. And because we're orange threat in our country, um, U.S. Marshals had to come in because it was now their jurisdiction, and we made the news, all because I was preaching the gospel. And I thought to myself, I'm out, man. I, I, I don't want to do this stuff. This is crazy. And since then, I had trackers on my car, people um, um, scanning me, finding me, stalking me, and doing all sorts of stuff. And, and, and if you were to come to my house, I have a really old house, an average house, because that's all you can afford in California. And, um, but yet, I have a bunch of video cameras, all a bunch of security cameras, and the reason why is because my elders in our church just want to make sure that, um, that I'll be able to continue to preach the gospel. And because we have, not just with me, but our church, um, hundreds and thousands of people have come to uh, surrender their life to Jesus. And I think we should celebrate that. And, and I think it's, it's an amazing thing that the Lord is doing. And, and, yet, and, and yet, though things are hard in our area, there's a kind of hardness here that I, I want to speak into because I think it's, it's fun to tell these stories and live on the other side, but on your end, I think 
just being in more like a, a, a Dallas suburb like this, we, we just think, well, everybody that I know are basically Christians. And that could really lull you to sleep. And the earthly reality is this, that there is a generation upon generations of gospel patrons passing off the gospel to one another, and yet the numbers seem to decline and decline and decline each and every year. Here's what I'm saying. Historically, churches have been faithful passing down the gospel from generation to generation. Um, Tom Rayner wrote a book called uh, The Bridger Generation, and here's some statistics. Ready? Over 65 years old, we see that generation has about 65% Christians who attend church and who's completely bought in. If you are between the age of 46 to 64, you see about 35% of people are saved. If you're in the range of 34 to 45, then 15% of those are saved in that generation. And from 16-year-old to 33-year-old, we see that only 4% of people are saved. Now, if those numbers are even close to reality, there is a very serious problem before us. We literally are losing a generation, and worse yet, it's happening on our watch. And though we have many, many choices here on earth, there's only two choices in eternity. There's heaven and there's hell. And the reality is, in the next 365 days, in America alone, there'll be three million people that will die not surrendering their life to Jesus, for, their, for they will be casted into hell. Then in the next 365 days, we'll see 67 million people here on earth, and they will die without knowing Jesus. And they'll be quarantined to a place that uh, the Bible will call gnashing of teeth. So God sent his son, and the son sends the spirit, and the spirit launches the disciples, and the disciples launch it to church. And the church from generation on end, one generation after next, has launched each other. And yet it seems like we in this generation are dropping the ball. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, so often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is the arch defender of status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and yet often even vocal sanction of things as they are. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial and evangelistic spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. And if that doesn't um, worry you or strike you, um, we're going to look at the scriptures. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, would you turn to this time, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 35. And this is the theme verse for this conference this weekend, as Jesus is the God of the harvest. Matthew 9, 35, 38, and once again, I'll pray that the Holy Spirit preach a better sermon than the one that you're about to hear from me today. The verse goes like this in verse 35. And as Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That is the word of the Lord for this great day. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right. So let me give you three things that I have committed to in my life that I just prayed over and over again, these three things. And I pray for you that these three things will somehow stick in your life, that they will be a direct calling from the scripture personalized through the Holy Spirit that lives in you to awaken you of these things. First is a renewed compassion, a renewed compassion in you. And here's what it says in Matthew 9. It says, Jesus had compassion for the lost. And of course we say he does. But my question is, do you? Do you have compassion? You know, according to George Bonner, 76% of Americans believe in heaven, but only 32% believe in hell. And would you believe only less than 1% of the people believe that they're going there? And, and, and less than 1%, while many of us have unbelieving people and family members that we know, statistics will say that the vast majority of us have never breached the subject of heaven and hell to them. Why? Because we are uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable making them uncomfortable. But you know what's really uncomfortable? Hell. Hell is really uncomfortable. In fact, Richard Sibb says this, the great Puritan, he says, outside of God, outside of Christ, God is terrible. Yes, because one day those people will show up to God in his judgment seat without Christ the mediator. And if you show up to that judgment seat without Christ, God can be absolutely terrible because the judgment will come upon you. You know, I have a Christian friend who's an annihilationist, the idea that you know you could receive Christ, and yet if you just die and not receiving Christ, then you're annihilated, that you no longer just cease to exist. There's no hell And he believes this because it seems like a kinder doctrine. It seems like a doctrine that is more palatable for the non-Christians. And so this is what he believes. And, and, And I just don't particularly see it that way. Because if the judgment of God is real, then they should know that it is real. And they should be warned of what is coming to them. That your hope of heaven is gone. And that your conscience is awakened forever. Regret and guilt will be the everlasting status of your soul. And therefore, God will pour out his wrath to the living soul with extreme pain and torment. That will be their fate forever. And some of the brightest theologians in our history, like John Calvin and Milton and Lewis, all believe that fire described in Scripture were just metaphorical. But even then, not a literal fire, they all agree at the very least that hell is a place of great torment, which should bring about deep fear in all of us. And can I just share with you briefly why you and I don't have a lot of compassion? It's not because we don't have a heart, but I think in some ways when we think about hell, it's really hard to make that hell a reality for our lives. Why? Because the indwelling Holy Spirit, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convince you that you are constantly safe from hell. That the job of the Holy Spirit is to be a seal. as to say, you've been stamped. 
to be a child of God, that there's a witness where the Holy Spirit constantly convinces you on the jury stand that you are okay and you are beloved by God, and that there is a guarantee that Christ's death was sufficient for you. And the Holy Spirit is constantly working in you so that you don't think hell is a reality for you. And this is one of the real realities of our lives as Christians. We can't even taste hell even if we wanted to just so that we might have a healthy dose of fear in us so that we might go out and share the reality of hell. It's almost like going onto a roller coaster and no way we would ever go on a roller coaster without the safety straps of every kind, do you know what I mean? But once we put it on, in some ways, now finally we could actually experience the thrill of it rather than the threat of it. But imagine if you were at the peak and you realized you had nothing on you, no safety measure, then the threat would be so real and the reality for us is that we know that we have a harness in the Holy Spirit, and he protects us, and therefore we don't fear, so we enjoy the thrill of that. And yet the other side of reality is that there is a hell that is not acknowledged, acknowledged by the unbeliever, and in between the protective filter of the Holy Spirit through us and the unacknowledged reality of hell by the unbeliever, in between it, there is a reality of hell that is more terrifying than we could ever, ever imagine. And our unbelieving family and friends will surely, surely encounter it. Um, Edward Payson, a minister in the 1800s, finished this powerful sermon with these words. And I just want you to consider it. It's, it's a little long, but um, he, he frames it in a way that I, I just can't. And so uh, I want you to consider these words that he preached. He, he goes on to say, uh, I cannot, must not, however, conclude without addressing a word, my professing friends, to you. And my hope is that you will bear with me in view of such a subject as this. I address you with apparent severity. You see, an apostle teaches ministers that they must sometimes rebuke the professing Christian sharply. But I trust my sharpness will be the sharpness of love. And I know that I shall say nothing to you half so severe as the reproaches to which I have directed against myself while preparing this sermon. We all deserve perdition a thousand times for our stupid insensibility to the situation of those who are perishing around us. We profess we believe in the word of God. And yet, can you all prove that you believe it? Do you all act as if you believed it? What? Believe that many of your acquaintances, your children, are in danger of the faith to which now has been described? Dare you go to God and say, Lord, I believe thy word. I believe all that thy threatenings will be fulfilled. And then turn away and coolly pursue your worldly business without uttering one agonizing cry for those who are exposed to these threatenings? Dare you go and claim relationship to Christ and profess to have his spirit without which you are none of his and then make no effort or only few faint efforts to save those from whom he has shed not tears only but his blood? Go, I may say to such, go inconsistent, cruel, hard-hearted professors, Go slumber over the ruin of immortal souls. Wrap yourself up in your selfish temporal interests and say, I have no time to spare for rescuing others from everlasting burnings. And he speaks to the parents and says, go wear out your life in acquiring property for your children and leave their souls to perish in the fire that will never be quenched. 
And to the doctors, he says of his congregation, go adorn their bodies and banish from them, if possible, the seeds of disease, but leave in their bosoms that immortal worm that will gnaw them forever. And when God asks, where is thy child, thy brother, thy friend? You will reply with impious Cain, I know not, I care not, and my, my brother's keeper. It's, does that speak to you? Do you have unbelieving friends around you? And you've done something to shun them from the reality of hell that exists. We cannot take our first step unless you and I supernaturally grow in this compassion that Jesus had. But here's the second thing, not only a renewed compassion, I pray for the heights, but a renewed commission that is to go, to go. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out workers into his harvest. Do you see here, according to this text, Jesus says the harvest doesn't come to you, that you and I are to go into the harvest, which means you just can't wait until somebody comes and knocks at your door. That means you have to prepare yourself and you must gird up your loins and you must go and look for those people after all. That was the ministry of Jesus. He, before he could save the lost, he sought out the lost. And so will you seek out the lost? And will you prepare yourself? Will you guard yourself? Will you study so that you can meet these unbelievers' needs? You know, the last, I would say, four or five years, I've been meeting with a couple, two friends. Every other Friday night, we sit in our backyard and, um, and we drink, um, I guess, Capri Suns or something like that. Let's just say that. <laughs> Sounds better. Capri Suns, Gatorade, we drink something, and uh, sometimes they're brown. Anyway, we, we enjoy that, and, 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 um, and we talk. And I'll tell you, one of them's a Stanford professor. One of them's a, a brilliant engineer, and, and they have great questions. And we have been able to dialogue many times. And I just want to give you 10 questions that they've asked, okay, that that you and the church, I think we must understand and prepare. I think the answer is not so much come to church because they won't come to church, that God has given you this relationship for you to interact and go because the harvest is there. The question is like this. Number one, how can Christianity actually prove that God exists? Or isn't Christian science just science denying, Christianity science denying? Or how can the loving God of Christianity allow suffering and evil? Isn't Christianity just a crutch for the reality of afterlife? Isn't Christianity as a whole divisive? Isn't Christianity sexually repressive? Isn't Christianity homophobic? Doesn't Christianity oppose women's women's rights? Now, these are the questions that the world actually has. And if you want to actually address them and you want to evangelize and you have a heart of compassion, then along with that compassion comes a practicum for you to answer these questions, study them, and address them. And I, I did some homework on, on some of the things that you've been teaching and you've been learning over the past year. There was a great sermon series that you guys did last fall in addressing some of these questions. 
I would say Alpha is such a great way also to learn and to invite somebody. Another good source is a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. And I, I give you these things because these are real and these are in my face. And if you really have the compassion and care to reach out to your non-believing friends, you will have to answer some of these questions. And the answers are out there. And I pray that you would equip yourself. And third and lastly, not only should you have a renewed compassion and a commission, but lastly, a renewed petition. Would you look at verse 38 with me? It says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into the harvest. I love that. Do you know what the secret of the early church success to reaching people? Acts 6.4 says they were devoted to, the apostles were devoted to what? Prayer and the word. That's it. And you realize they flipped the world upside down? They didn't have the internet? They didn't have like alpha course? They had none of these things. But they had prayer and they had the word of God. And they flipped the world upside down literally. And I will say in the Western world, including my church, the ministry of prayer, though it is essential to the Christian life, we don't view it as essential. And the word essential has been hijacked. Oh, the things that we consider essential, like for instance, oils, oils. We call them essential oils. I mean, can we give them another name? Like good oils or expensive oils or fake oils? What, I'm, I'm not dogging on you. If you like essential, essential oils and you like to diffuse them, you see dollar signs going up and that's your thing. Go for it. But man, you know what essential means? Essential means you can't do without it. And could I tell you, prayer is essential to the church. You see, prayer was an essential element of the early church, and yet, today, prayer is only supplemental to the contemporary church. And that's an indictment. You see, in the Church of Acts, um, had nothing. They turned the world upside down. Do you know, when you study the book of Acts from chapter one to 28, you know what span it is, how long that is? It's only 30 years. And in 30 years, they turned the world upside down. And I'm just wondering, what would our 30 years, the next 30 years at the heights might look like if we just devoted ourselves to prayer? Do you see? Prayer is not something that we do before the work. It is the work. It is the work. It's not something you do right before a meal. It's not what you do right before you preach. It's not something that you do so that you could actually have a a lucky day or your golf game gets better. For the church, it is the work. And my question is, does every discipleship group in your church not just pray, but pray earnestly to send people into the harvest? You see, this text calls us to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest because though we labor, you see, the the harvest doesn't depend on us. Could I just remind you the good news? You and I are so scared of evangelizing because, let's face it, we just feel so inadequate. 
we fear so much that we'll offend them or we'll fear that they'll ask us a question that we can't answer and we'll look dumb and we just don't feel like, I know I've been a Christian for 30 years and I still don't know the answers. And we fear this. And we just think of all the inadequacies under the sun and we say, man, I can't share the gospel. I remember feeling the same. You know what's interesting? I still feel that now. I really feel inadequate to share the gospel. And yet over and over and over again, God has shown me that, that through prayer, that he fulfills and he becomes inadequacy. And that's why we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest. We're not, we're not to pray so that uh, they would just come to the Lord. We're praying to the Lord of the harvest because through our insufficiency, we pray to a God who has no insufficiency at all. Zero insufficiency, all sufficiency, all power. And we pray to this God who not only brings the harvest, but we're asking them to send people into the harvest. And this is one of my convictions for this church and mine. I believe that many of our churches are only seeing conversions only in proportion to how much we pray. And you see a bunch of conversions. Maybe, man, you have some saints that are praying like crazy. Maybe if you haven't seen new life, maybe it's this season for us to pray. Buckle down and not just through breakthrough conference that we come devote ourselves to pray, but everything we do, we, we lay down our inadequacy and say, there's a father who is completely and utterly sufficient. And that God and his sovereignty will rule over our mission field and we just leave the result to him. And that's the freedom there because there's nothing that you can lose when you go evangelize to people because you're already a child of God. Nothing they could say could offend you because they can't take that away from you. You're a child of God. You have all the esteem in the world. If you feel like you lost some esteem because you lost a question, I, or maybe you couldn't answer a question, maybe you don't understand what it means to be a child of the king. There's more esteem there than anything you could accomplish in this world. And you will go into the harvest and utterly be inadequate like me. But here's the good news. I'll say it this way, I'll close. Um, years ago, I was playing basketball with my children, my two youngest, and one was in middle school and one was in elementary school. We went to their elementary school. They, we, don't, we didn't even have a basketball in the home because my kids, they're like super Asian. They like studying, they don't like kicking balls. And I'm like so frustrated. I'm like, mm, can, we, can you guys do something like kick balls, shoot balls? I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna do this. So I bought a basketball and we went to the elementary school and we started shooting around and I'll just be honest I love them but they're terrible <laughs> they were horrific they're just like oh my gosh you shouldn't hold the basketball ever and we're, we're shooting around all of a sudden a team with jerseys with names they all started coming in you know you've seen Mount Monsters Inc now that team comes in with the lights and they're like they're like wow and they showed up and they looked at me and said hey you you guys want to play a three-on-three match and my kids started freaking out. They're like, Daddy, Daddy, look, they have uniforms. They have like six balls. And there are only three of them. And you know, they're like, awesome. And they're like, we can't, we don't know how to play basketball. And I said to my daughter, listen, girl, we're going to be okay. Because first, 
there were only fourth graders. <laughs> and, and, and secondly, I'm two feet taller than them. And so this is what I'll do. I'll sit under the basket, and when you get the ball, I just want you to chuck it towards the basket. I don't care what you do, just chuck it towards the basket, and guess what? You won't even come close to the basket, but you know who will be close to the basket? Me, Daddy. And I will get the rebound, and I will dunk on them. <laughs> so we played it out. We played a game, and the Quans beat that team 7-0. 7-0. I tell you this because you feel inadequate to share the gospel like my kids play basketball. But the call to your life is to have compassion, pray, and simply just shoot the ball. Not to make it, but shoot around the rim somewhere. And you know what God does? The inadequate God will use all of your inadequacy and get the ball and jam it on Satan's face. And all of Dallas will be changed forever and ever and ever. Amen. Because the throne room of God will celebrate one day many Dallas people, many Richardson people, Plano people, all the way to Prosper even. Even people in Prosper need Jesus. And they will one day hear of this God, not because God moved about the harvest, but we pray to God to send people into the harvest for us to speak words of inadequacy to whom God is completely sufficient and he will work and he will save and we will one day as a big one family will glory in God's presence forevermore. Amen. 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 Let me pray for you. Lord, we come with all of our inadequacies and we're praying to a God who is completely sufficient. And we know that you'll do the work. Father, give us the compassion first. Give us the compassion to know there are people around us that don't know the gospel and that left alone, that they, they will soon die without knowing the gospel and they'll be casted into an everlasting burning place called hell. And Lord, will you equip us? Will you help us to do something about it? Will you get us to take the next steps and just offer our yes to you and then pray as if it's not the pre-work of evangelism, but it is the work. And as we do, that you would use it and you will help us to see the sufficiency of our mighty God working through this culture and that there will be a generation that will tick up from 4% to 6% to 10% to 30% and the greatest generation will be ahead of us and that you will be glorified in Texas and all around the world for your fame, your fame alone. We pray in the matchless name of our Christ, our King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.